0: Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London.
1: And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington.
0: Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with Baking for Those We Love, and right now is no exception. We've heard you listeners and know you're counting on us to keep the baking conversation going strong, even in uncertain times. So that's what we intend to do. Today, we're up with a review of Shauna Seaver's Donut Loaf, and we'll preview review our last bake-along of this tangy month, a buttermilk quick bread with an astonishing 10 variations. Finally, to round out our sweet and sour month, we've got a deep dive into the food history of some of this month's star ingredients. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet and sour talk.
1: Stefan, you sent me a new recipe a few days ago that I'm excited to talk about with you. Just when I think we have talked about everything we could related (laughs) to pie crust, (laughs) along comes something new. So tell me about this sour cream pie crust recipe that you found. Yes, it's called
0: the No Fail Sour Cream Pie Crust, words that always catch my attention. (sighs) It's from Elise Bauer at Simply Recipes. Now, Andrea, as we were compiling all of the many recipes that we were choosing from this month. This one caught my eye and it just wasn't able to be incorporated, but I wanted to talk about it because I've never made a pie crust with sour cream. Have you?
1: I have not, but the recipe that I use most frequently, my Mary Beth's Reliable Pie Crust that we have on our website, Yes, she has a variation that uses sour cream. And Sour cream is sort of a precious ingredient in my house. I use it a lot. My daughter absolutely loves it. So unless it's a required item in a recipe, I don't tend to experiment with it or, you know, put it in something unless I need to. Because it's already getting used
0: up. It's already spoken for. Yes. Right. Yep. Yep. When you start reading this recipe, you think this sounds like a basic recipe. It's two cups of all-purpose flour, a teaspoon of salt, two teaspoons of sugar, two sticks of unsalted butter, and then here's the kicker, the half cup of Full fat sour cream. And she really does say you need to make this full fat. What's really interesting about the method, though, is Andrea, the dough that I make, and I I think Mary Beth's pie crust is the same way. You want that butter to be really cold. That's kind of the mantra of pie making, right? Like the fat must be cold. Yes. But here she says, because you're adding the sour cream, it's okay if the butter is kind of room temperature. You're kneading it in with your hands more like you're making biscuits. And then there's no water. You are using the sour cream for the rest of that moisture. This could be a really fun one to experiment with. Nice and flaky, nice and kind of tangy. She does say you don't want to blind bake with this because there's such a high fat. You are almost not going to be able to avoid Mm -hmm. the dreaded slump or the dreaded shrinkage. And you've heard us talk about that (laughs) in the past. But you know what? If you've got a pie coming up and you want to try something a little different, I would really love to know if any listeners try this, if maybe their reliable pie crust recipe has sour cream in it, would love
1: to know how this one turns out. The other thing I found interesting about this recipe is I follow the mantra, a pretty pie crust doesn't equal a delicious pie crust. So it should look shaggy mm. and have cracks in it and still have some lumps and bumps. Yeah. And her recipe here says make sure your dough disk do not have cracks in them. And go ahead and really massage it Ooh. and let it have the consistency of Play-Doh. So this one just goes against all the rules yeah. that I follow <laughs> yes, on exactly. pie pretzel. I am fascinated with it. Stefan, this is not our first recipe from Elise Bauer at Simply Recipes. Oh, my
0: gosh. I know. Don't tell me. Um, okay, do tell me. <laughs> Sorry, Elise.
1: <laughs> well, it is all the way back in episode three, so you can be forgiven. <gasps> Cold chocolate snacking cake? Nope, that was four. Uh, Episode three was the upside down cranberry cake, and that was Elise. Oh my gosh. Well,
0: maybe that's why it was jumping out to me as well. Well, that Mm -hmm. was a great cake. Many of our listeners have had great success with that as well. So that just gives me an extra reason to try her sour cream pastry then.
1: Yes, it looks really good. I'm fascinated by this recipe. I might see if I can wriggle some sour cream out of my daughter and use it the next time I make pie crust. (laughs) Andrea, do you have like a
0: stash of snacks in your house that are just for you? Or am I the only one who does that? Like a hidden stash?
1: No, I was going to say, not only do I have the stash, it is hit. So I have a... Okay, right. Well, I was about to say where it is, but I'm not going to say it now because no. people could
0: be listening. What was I thinking? You know, I don't often think of sour cream going in that hidden stash,
1: but maybe it will have to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's harder to do when you're in the refrigerator, that's for sure. In the fridge section. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah.
0: Well, speaking of the fridge section, Andrea, I wanted to have a quick update. When we did our first bake-along this month, it used milk kefir, and that was our chocolate chai kefir cake. And inspired by you and so many of our other listeners who make that milk kefir, I decided the time was right for me to try it.
1: Oh, so proud of you. How did it go?
0: Well, it went really well. And the thing that I did differently, I found a starter kit that had freeze-dried sachet of kernels. The reason this appealed to me right now is that those kernels multiply when you're making kefir, like your SCOBY multiplies, like your sourdough starter multiplies. And right now, I don't have anyone to give them away to. Right. I'm a little anxious about keeping up with, you know, making sure the batches are in process so I'm not wasting kernels and doing all of that. So what I like about this kit is each freeze-dried sachet makes four liters of kefir total. So I can use it and recycle it for four batches and then go on to a new one. Oh, okay it's probably an option in the states or elsewhere but so listeners if you were a little bit dubious about trying the whole kernel method or getting them from a friend or not sure where to source them see if you can't find this freeze-dried method it will let you be a little bit more flexible and by the way i loved it
1: oh good good i'm glad you liked it i'm glad you found this it sounds more like you're sort of dating this kafir instead of getting married it doesn't <laughs> require the same commitment level It's pretty casual right now, so I don't want to put a label on it, Andrea. (laughs) You know, what I thought of when you mentioned the freeze-dried kefir, you know we had that fabulous chat on sourdough starter on our Zoom conference call. That was so much fun. Yes, loved that. When I was cleaning up after, I had bits of starter because I had to record in my dining room instead of in my kitchen. I had bits of starter stuck to various yeah. things and all over the place. <laughs> and I had apparently this one towel where I had gotten some of it on there and kind of forgot about it. Yeah, And I went later to pull it off. And of course, it had completely dried and formed just almost like a cracker oh. type consistency. It reminded me that I have bought freeze-dried sourdough starter before. Okay. I looked it up. And sure enough, if you're making your sourdough starter and you are like, oh my gosh, I have so much of this. What am I going to do with it? You can dry it. Cowboys used to travel with sourdough (laughs) starter rolled up in like towels or dish towels on their horses. I mean, that's how sturdy this stuff is. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is heritage indeed. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yes. I just wanted to throw that out to people. If you don't feel like you're going to do enough baking to actually have this starter going in your fridge and feeding it every week and, you know, worried about keeping it alive, you can just dry some of it and put it aside and then rehydrate it and reconstitute it when you're ready to start baking again.
0: Yeah. You just kind of put it in suspended animation. Exactly.
1: Stefan, our recipe review this week is the donut loaf from the Midwest Made Cookbook by Shauna Seaver. You were very excited about this recipe just based on recipe name alone, and you yeah. are a donut lover. So, I am. of course, this called to you. I was a little bit more nervous about this recipe. I'm not a huge donut lover. Surprise, surprise. I know. You know one of the few pastries and baked goods that just has never really been my thing. Mm. But Looking at the ingredients, I was pretty excited about making this. And of course, anything with the word loaf in it just grabs me all the time. I love quick breads. I love loaf breads. I find them so much less intimidating than a regular cake. Yeah. And you made the comment last week when we intro'd this recipe that, you know, let's be honest, this is actually (laughs) a cake. And it it really is. It really is. Yeah. When you look at the ingredients and you start making it, you realize quite quickly that it is a cake. Let's start off and talk about actually how we made it and how it turned out for both of us. I'll kick it off because, of course, I made a modification. Oh, yeah. Instead of doing the 9 by 5 inch light colored metal loaf pan, which I actually have. And so I was kind of excited about having the correct implements. Yes. I decided to do some smaller variations and cut the recipe because of isolation baking and not going to school and not going to work and not having places to give this away. Yeah. I made two small loaf pans and then three mini loaf pans. So I ended up with five total donut loaves. Nice. How about you? Did you make the regular nine by five loaf?
0: I did. As I spoke about last week, there was a high possibility I was going to love this. And so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for better or for worse, I was like, I'm going whole hog here. Yeah. And yes, that's what I did. I don't, however, have a light-colored metal loaf pan. Mine is dark, and it's also non-stick. And if you remember, Andrea, when we were busting kitchen myths back in episode 156, what you should never do is spray a non-stick pan with baking spray. Okay. And the reason for that is that it can, over time, kind of build up this sticky film that you just cannot wash off. Mm. I just went ahead and used a whole fat, a butter there. You could also use a vegetable shortening. And then I lined it with parchment. But yeah, it was full size. It was a a nine inch loaf and I was good to go.
1: I also should add that I didn't do any of that business with the parchment. Thank you. I do use parchment with things like brownies and some other stuff where it's fairly easy to do a parchment sling. I find parchment slings are Mm -hmm. easy to do when you're in a square pan, like an eight by eight or a nine by nine. Once you're working with a loaf pan, Mm -mm. making a parchment sling and cutting strips, and it started to feel like crafting to me, and I am not a crafty person, so I skipped that step.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you (laughs) brought that up because my note here just says, is this entirely necessary? In general, Andrea, I felt a little bit like this with several steps in this recipe, which we'll get to in a minute. But yeah, I just cut a link to fit inside the whole pan and you wedge it down and then you put your batter in and it came out fine. If you want to go up to all that effort of cutting the strips and doing it,
1: you know, go for it. But I don't think it's necessary. And I used my Baker's Joy, mm. you know, right when the periods of enforced isolation started and before things were shut down, you know, people were panicking about what was it they needed in their houses. Was it milk? Was it eggs? Was it flour? Was it yeast? Yeah. I sent my husband to the store and made him buy me two cans of Baker's Joy. <laughs> That's my girl. I was down to kind of the last, you know, those aerosol cans are tricky because you never quite know how much is in them until you go to use it. It's true. And you realize it's empty. Yeah, it's true. I just used Baker's Joy in all five of my pans and the loaves turned out beautifully. That works really well. I can go on record and say, if you don't want to do the parchment, use your Baker's Joy or your pan baking spray or create your own cake release and use that and it'll work out just fine.
0: And then you really get into more of the cake-like aspects of this loaf, and you have your, your dry ingredients there, which are your flour, your baking powder, your baking soda, salt, and nutmeg. Now, if you listened last week when we intro this recipe, we had quite a conversation about the fact that there are two teaspoons of freshly grated nutmeg. I was going to reserve judgment and see what I felt like after grating one teaspoon of fresh, two teaspoons of fresh with the pod I was using, Andrea, it would have been the whole pod. I, I just couldn't – I just couldn't do it. It felt like it was so fresh. It was so vibrant. I love nutmeg, but I was fine stopping at one teaspoon. Did you go with all two?
1: Well, yes. I followed the recipe as I always do. <laughs> now, <you laughs> what know, was I asking? You know me. I love nutmeg. And so I did a similar type thing. I started by grating my whole nutmeg Yeah, pods. What are they called? Nuts? I don't know. I think they're just called nutmeg. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I was grating my whole nutmegs on my microplaner. And when you first start doing it, the nutmeg is so flaky and light. It doesn't pile up in a bowl like a Mm -hmm. a typical sort of nutmeg powder. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't even know how I'm going to get two teaspoons out of this. But I just kept going and I did two nutmegs. And that ended up with two full teaspoons plus a little bit more. Yeah. I would say maybe two nutmegs was two and a half teaspoons, and I used the full two teaspoons because it smelled so good I couldn't not use it. I was just in heaven, and I thought, toxicity, I don't care. I'm going (laughs) to go for it. (laughs) That's a risk I'm willing to take. It was a risk I was willing to take, and uh, spoiler alert, I'm glad I did.
0: Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. You next have 14 tablespoons of unsalted butter at room temperature. And I would just like to call out that there are several ingredients she asks be at room temp. One is that butter, the other is the eggs, and then finally, your tangy ingredient of the month, the buttermilk. So, you know, if you are going to bake long and haven't had a chance yet, just do read that through because you may need to pull
1: most, if not all, of those items out. Yeah, I pulled all three of those out in the morning. I'm glad that. I actually, for once, read the recipe all the way through because I think I would have otherwise missed that. So when I pulled my butter out, I also pulled out my buttermilk and my three large eggs. Can I make a tiny complaint about the ingredients here before we move on? Yes. 14 tablespoons is just two tablespoons short of two sticks. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Like with the flour, two and three quarters cup is, in my world, requires two measuring cups. The two cup measure And the three-quarter cup measure. Yes. You know, when ingredients are this, I'll use the word fussy, I don't think that's correct, but exacting maybe, I'm always kind of wondering, would it really have killed this cake to have the full two sticks of butter in? What do you think? I know. And you know, the other thing
0: that was slightly aggravating is that there were no weights here. Right. That's just not how I'm baking so much anymore. So I was doing the math, and of course, it's not really exact because my flour could be different than your flour, and yes, it's kind of something you want to test over time, but it just really makes me appreciate the recipe developers who are putting those weights with their other standard measures because I think it, right. it makes such a difference. I know. You know, we've been talking about not wasting ingredients and really feeling like our baking ingredients are precious right now, and one thing I did too is I measured all of my ingredients over a piece of parchment, so I wasn't mm-hmm. wasting any Grated nutmeg. I wasn't wasting any flour, where before I might have been a little slapdash mm. about it. I mm-hmm. then poured any extra, you know, right back into my canister. Sure.
1: No, it just occurred to me. I thought, well, gosh, if you had bumped up the flour to three cups, maybe you could have bumped up the butter to 16 tablespoons instead of 14. But I'm not a recipe developer. I'm sure some food scientists are listening to me and saying, oh my gosh, no, that would have totally ruined it. Yeah. That was just my thought as I was making it. The Beating with the sugar and the vanilla and the butter worked out quite well on my side. And you beat it until it's light and fluffy, about three minutes. Yep. And then you start adding in that flour mixture, just a quarter cup to start. And then you beat in the eggs one at a time. There are three eggs. And then you reduce the mixer to low. And you start doing the flour mixture and the buttermilk in five alternating additions, beginning and ending with the flour mixture. Now, I read this instruction three times, and I'm still not sure, was it supposed to be five total alternating additions, or was it supposed to be five of the flour and five of the buttermilk?
0: I agree. This was a place where I wanted Shauna to be more exact in what she was asking us to do. I, again, went back to the fact that this is a cake recipe, and cake recipes that I generally make, you start dry, go wet, dry, wet end with dry. And so that's what I did, which meant it was five total. That's what I did, too.
1: But it would have been more helpful to say
0: that a different way. Yeah,
1: that's what I ended up doing as well. But I would have liked that spelled out a little bit better. Yeah. Again, I mm-hmm. don't make a lot of cakes. And so it would have been nice to know, for example, that the buttermilk you were going to do a third a cup at a time or something like that.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and then you've got that batter. She says it is going to be fairly thick. You put it into your prepared pan. Bake until the loaf is golden with a couple of cracks on top and a toothpick inserted comes out clean. Now, she says 60 to 75 minutes. That's a big spread of 15 minutes there, so you really want to know your oven. Mine is a fan oven. I was using a 165 degrees Celsius fan oven. Also, because my pan was dark, I started checking that at 55 minutes, and I thought it was done. So that's even less than she has indicated there comes out on a wire rack for 15 minutes and then lift it out
1: of the pan for another 30. And of course, I had completely different instructions since I changed my pan size. The oven is at a low temperature. It's at 325 degrees Fahrenheit in my oven. Right. I checked my minis at 25 minutes and they were still a bit wet in the center. So I added another 10 minutes. I checked my minis then and they were done. So at 35 minutes, my mini ones were done. I added another 10 minutes, and at 45 minutes, my smaller loaf pans were done. So 45 minutes was the longest I did. Awesome.
0: And then I bet because you had smaller loaves to play with, Andrea, you had a much easier time of step five than I did. Step five is the longest step in the recipe instructions. It's probably... Hmm two dozen sentences, and it all involves putting the powdered sugar on your hot loaf. Because I think the idea that is going for here is that your loaf looks like a giant powdered sugar donut.
1: Yeah, step five exhausted me when I was reading it, so I decided <laughs> not to follow it. And with my mini loaves, all I did was I melted some butter. I used my silicone brush to sort of brush the melted butter over those mini loaves and then I popped them into a ziploc bag with some powdered sugar and shook it and that was really easy and worked really well. Mm -hmm. With my smaller size loaves, the two smaller size loaves, I did the same thing. I brushed some melted butter over them on the top but I didn't worry too much about the sides and the bottom. I mean I just felt like gilding the lily at that point to continue putting more melted butter on these little cakes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I just went with the tops and the powdered sugar on top I thought that was just fine. I don't feel like it needs to be covered in powdered sugar, although I agree with you. I think she was just going after that look of recreating that powdered sugar donut look.
0: Yeah, I like the idea, but the execution was ridiculous, and I don't think it's necessary. So learn from my example here. The first thing I want to say is if you're going to give this a try, what you're essentially doing is coating the entire loaf while it's still warm, she says in melted butter and then kind of rolling it in a sheet pan coated with powdered sugar. My first quibble here is when it's still slightly warm, it's still too fragile. So my cake started mm. to crack. Oh. Then it's it's a mess. I,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: I don't know what else to say and it's not really sticking, it's not adhering. There's Kind of lumpy pieces of sugar and butter. Yeah. You know, do the top. You're going to have plenty of powdered sugar. People are going to get the idea. And you know what? This was so darn delicious. You will not miss the fact that the bottom and the sides don't have powdered sugar. This was like my ugly duckling that turned into a swan. That's how much I
1: loved this donut loaf. I also thought this was one of the best things I'd ever tasted. When I took my first bite, I thought to myself, oh, it does taste like a powdered donut. Who knew that it was nutmeg? I mean, there is sort of that elusive flavor Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. you have a commercial Mm -hmm. powdered donut, which I don't think I've had in years. But it definitely brought back memories for me as soon as I took a bite. Yes,
0: me too, Andrea. And then I made the very dangerous middle-of-the-night realization that I could top this with raspberry jam, therefore making (laughs) my favorite donut, which is the powdered sugar jelly-filled donut. Let me tell you, do it. Unbelievable.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, my husband made the suggestion that he wanted me to take some strawberries that we had that were on the wane and... Dice those up and put some sugar on them and sort of make the strawberry puree and put it on top. And I thought that was very good. Oh, My daughter's like me. My daughter does not love donuts. And so she didn't even take a bite. I'm going to throw out a PSA, a public service announcement here. My daughter is 14. We started this show, what, Stefan, four years ago.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Three and a half at least. Right.
1: And I've seen a lot of comments from different parents on a variety of parenting blogs about You know, how do I get my kids to break their sugar consumption? How can I stop my kids from wanting sweets and snacks all the time? And here's how. You force your child every week to try something you've baked. You beg them, please, please just eat this cookie. Please just have this slice of cake. Please just try this and tell me what you think. And by the fourth year, they roll their eyes at you and go, "Mm -hmm. no, no, thanks. I'm not interested. No, I'll pass. I don't really like donuts. (laughs) <laughs> this is exactly
0: my experience as well. It's so funny that we're just now talking about this because I thought maybe it was just unique to my kids, but they are so, for lack of a better word, like they're over it. They're like, mom's baking again. Yep. And it's never what they, I shouldn't say it's never, it's not what they had requested. You know, it's always an experiment. It's right. something new. And don't get me wrong, they they love a lot of what's coming out of the kitchen, but
1: they're just like, mm, no thanks. Because something's <laughs> going to show up in another two days, right? <laughs> I know. Yeah. So it's like, why bother? But you know what? I was okay with that this time because I loved this donut loaf so much. I was like, no problem, more for me. Ugh. I did a little experiment with myself since I had my five minis. I had a good way of doing this, which I ate the first mini warm out of the oven. So after the 30 minute cool down, freshly powdered, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. absolutely delicious. And I thought to myself, There's no way tomorrow's is going to top that. There's just simply no way. But you know what? The next day after sitting overnight and it was still, you know, coated in that powdered sugar, I think you could refresh it if you wanted it to look a little bit prettier. You could put some more powdered sugar on top because it kind of soaks in. But I didn't do that. And I think it
0: was just as good the second day. I think it aged really well. I think you're absolutely right. I think my husband and I had finished it off by maybe the end of the second (laughs) time. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I can't really speak beyond that. Mm -hmm. Although the recipe itself had some frustrations and I think I would entirely skip that last very elaborate powdered sugar step. I just loved it, Andrea. And mm-hmm. not all recipes that we make go down into my kind of personal file right. down in my kitchen. And this one's, I had to go hunt for it before we recorded. I'm like, where did I put that? Oh, it's already its already been filed downstairs. It's a winner.
1: It definitely is. So apologies to Shauna for our quibbles with the recipe because it's worth it. The end result is so good.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Well, Andrea, if you are looking to make something a little bit quicker, a little less complicated, and frankly, a little healthier, this week's preview review is the buttermilk quick bread. This is also posted on the kitchen website, and it has 10 variations, everything from sweet to savory. So we're just going to talk this through quickly. We aren't going to talk about it next week since this is the last show of April,
1: but wanted to give you some more options during our sweet and sour month. And we also wanted to give you another opportunity to use up any remaining buttermilk you might have left. Also, I like the fact that this recipe has options on the oil. Yes! Yeah, that way if you're running out of certain things, this is a good recipe to go to. So it's got two cups of all-purpose flour, half a cup of white sugar, your baking powder, your baking soda, your salt. Then that cup of buttermilk, one egg. And then a quarter cup of either unsalted butter, olive oil, or vegetable oil. So I just love that you have options there.
0: I love that too. I'm not sure I've seen a recipe that gives you so many choices on the fat. And then, speaking of choices,
1: you know, after you make this quick loaf, which is just your traditional, you whisk together your dry ingredients, you melt the butter if you're using butter, otherwise you... Take your oil and mix it in with the buttermilk and the egg. Yeah. And then you pour the liquid ingredients over the dry ingredients. You don't want to overmix it. And then you put it into your loaf pan, bake it for 45 to 50 minutes. But there are 10 different variations. <laughs> and I'm used to having multiple variations because I've mentioned before I love Mark Bittman's How to Bake Everything. Yeah. And he does this a lot where he'll give you a base recipe and then give you the variations. Yeah. What I found fascinating about these variations is that half of them are savory. I
0: loved that. I noted that too, Andrea. And of course, we love our savory bakes. And this month, we had just been doing the sweet ones. So we were really, really happy to find this. Yeah. Yeah. I also really like, you know, this is a time when people are sometimes unable to find yeast. So here's another quick bread that you can do so many different ways
1: without yeast, and you're not going to get tired of all of these variations. They also say that up to half of the flour, so it's two cups of flour, so at least up to one cup can be substituted with an alternative flour. Yep. If you're running out of your all-purpose flour, go ahead and try your whole wheat, your emmer, your einkorn, your rye. I mean, I could go on. Your
0: oat. I know. I thought that too. And I think that would really add to several of these. You know, it'd be really fun to do like an oat flour with your apple cinnamon loaf or try emmer with that onion dill or, or pesto loaf. I mean, I think that's a really fun place. And you're given the green light, which means they think that's a good substitution to make.
1: Yeah, the only reason I didn't make this this week is because I'm still chowing down on my donut loaf, and so <laughs> I didn't need Pump something the so soon right on top of my donut loaf. Um, but I think this one is also going into my file of things to try here as soon as I'm done with that donut loaf, and it just looks really tasty.
0: Yeah, and again, so many variations. You can really play to your heart's content with that one. Well, remember, we'll have a link to all of the recipes we've talked about today in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 174, on our website, PreheatedPodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners
1: group. Stefan, we've had so much fun this month making all kinds of desserts with a variety of dairy, from sour cream to buttermilk, yogurt to kefir. So we thought it was only appropriate to do a mini segment on some of the history behind the products that we've been using.
0: It's a dairy deep dive. (laughs) Sorry, couldn't help myself. (laughs) Yes, you're absolutely right. Turns out there's a lot to learn. Let's start with buttermilk. And to talk about buttermilk, it follows that you need to talk about butter and milk. This tangy addition to everyone's favorite pancakes started life as the byproduct of another baking essential, butter. Buttermilk was the liquid left behind after the churning of cream into butter, Before modern homogenization in the 1920s, fresh milk was left to sit for a while to allow the cream to rise. And during this time, naturally occurring lactic acid produced bacteria in the leftover milk that helped preserve it and give it its trademark tanginess
1: and name. Buttermilk is especially popular in warmer climates, where fresh milk spoils more easily. Traditional buttermilk is still made and enjoyed in many Indian, Nepalese, Pakistani, and Arab households. But in Western countries, many of us use a pasteurized version, which has been injected with healthy bacteria to make it cultured.
0: One dairy product we didn't use in a recipe this month, but that fits very well into our theme, is cream cheese. Interestingly, though I think of this as a very American product, early types of cream cheese were found in England as early as the 16th century and in France in the mid-17th century. By the mid-1800s, the U.S. had jumped on the bandwagon, and in 1873, dairyman William
1: A. Lawrence became the first to mass-produce cream cheese. In 1892, New York cheese distributor Alva Reynolds began to sell the cheese under the label Philadelphia, and an icon was born. Bagels were never the same. Heading back in time just a little further, let's talk about the origins of yogurt.
0: The details are a little fuzzy, but yogurt is thought to have been created in Mesopotamia in 5000 BC when milk spontaneously came into contact with good bacteria, probably from a nearby plant, allowing it to ferment and curdle into the
1: tangy treat we know today. The word yogurt derives from the Turkish words yormuk, which means to thicken, but yogurt was popular all over the ancient world. It's referenced in Indian, Persian, French, Turkish, Greek. Russian, and Western Asian history.
0: And by the early 1900s, many scientists and doctors had identified the good bacteria in yogurt as helping to calm a variety of digestive ills, with the Russian Nobel laureate and biologist, Ilya Mishnikov, hypothesizing that a diet rich in yogurt contributed to the long lifespan of
1: Bulgarian peasants. Yogurt was industrialized by businessman Isaac Carrasso, who started a production company in Barcelona in 1919. He named his company Danone after his son, which might sound familiar to U.S. listeners because that same company is today known as Danone. Stefan, can you guess who in my family would never eat yogurt? No. (laughs) Who? My mom. Oh. She grew up on a farm, and whenever I offered her some yogurt, she would say, That's just curdled milk. We fed that to the hogs. (laughs)
0: Well, speaking of another old but new dairy ingredient, it's funny to think that one that's gaining so much popularity these days has actually been around since the 1800s, kefir. Kefir probably originated in Russia, though that's a little controversial because language historians can trace the word to similar Turkish, Kurdish, and Persian words with the same basic definition. But wherever its origin, it was traditionally made in a goatskin bag that hung on a home's door handle. Every time someone would open the door, the liquid and kefir kernels inside of it would get a stir, allow the ingredients to become well-mixed.
1: That particular little fact, by the way, has stuck in my head, and every time this week... Are you going to try it? Well, every time this week I go to open the door, I think to myself, oh, imagine if I had this little goatskin bag. I could be stirring my kefir right now. I know. It's just so tantalizing. <laughs> Well, today it's easy to take all of these products for granted, but it's important to remember that they each represented a breakthrough in food science and technology in their own ways.
0: Let us know your own history with these tangy dairy ingredients. Drop us a line at hosts at preheatedpodcast.com. Leave us a voicemail at 802-276-0788 or leave a post in our Facebook listeners group.
1: Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and next week we're kicking off another listener-suggested theme month that will also check off one of our 20 for 20 baking resolutions, the Roaring Twenties. We'll have four weeks of favorite desserts from the 1920s, and learn all about why food innovations 100 years ago helped shape our baking today. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at preheatedpod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe, and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Our latest review is short and sweet, and I wanted to read it just so you know, it's not hard to do this. It comes from EMEC. The title is Comfort Food, and it says, A delightful show that manages to inspire with every episode. Aw, thank you, EMEC. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Our thoughts are with you and your families and loved ones. We hope our show has provided a bit of respite when you've needed it most. Thanks for listening. Be well and sweet dreams. Heated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stephen Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions.